Today is part three in this series, Revolution, Christ Over Culture, an in-depth analysis of the New Testament book of Acts. And in part three, we're going to discover an incredible event that is oftentimes misunderstood, many times misinterpreted, and many times just misread or overread. But today, my goal is that we see the beautiful, redemptive character of God at work in Acts chapter 2. It's no secret that the Jewish culture to which Jesus was born into in the first century was a terribly broken culture. It was this hope for the repair of the brokenness of that culture that I believe was the motivation for the dedication of those who were the disciples of Jesus. In other words, those 12 men who followed Jesus everywhere he went for some three plus years. I think one of the greatest motivations was the possibility that this man named Jesus could be the one who repaired the brokenness that their society, that the Jewish culture of the first century was experiencing. Because of this dedication, which was, uh, which, which was uh, brought about by this brokenness and by the hope for the repair or the restoration of this brokenness, they would endure multiple confusions and disappointments throughout their following of this man named Jesus. Now, we have seen in the previous lessons of this uh, teaching series on the book of Acts, we have seen that in the previous days, in the previous months, Months prior to Acts chapter 2, there have been a great deal of disappointments that most of these men who were apostles, who were followers of Jesus, had chosen to endure. Even though perhaps for moments in the midst of those difficulties, they had temporarily, uh, temporarily defected from their faith, if you will, they endured that disappointment for the most part, and we see them reconvening in the first chapter of the book of Acts, listening to the words of the resurrected Lord Jesus, listening to them ever so intently, knowing that God was going to do something. But we arrive at the book of Acts having observed these, specifically at Acts chapter 2, having observed the endurance of this difficult time, not only through the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus when they anticipated he would be the one who would overthrow the Roman government because that was their limited perception of the task of the Messiah. But that was not the end of their difficulties. Jesus' resurrection didn't, as much as it did, it still didn't solve every dilemma that was before them. Or so they had not yet realized it, I guess we should say. But it went on to uh, the, the event where Jesus is teaching them and he disappears into thin air, right? And keep that in mind. I know we've talked about that in detail two weeks ago, but we're going to come back to that briefly this morning. We're going to tie together something really cool and really powerful. But Jesus disappears before them in Acts chapter 1 as he is speaking and he is taken up into heaven. And then they're just like, what in the world is going on? Here we are studying in a hindsight a revolution. And I've presented to you for the last few weeks what other revolution in the history of humanity begins with the disappearance of their leader. 
There is none besides Christianity. And so they're just all kind of perplexed, and the angels tell them, Hey, Jesus, just as he was taken up from you, he's going to return again. So in other words, be busy about his work. Now they knew that Jesus had made them a promise. And this promise was that something was going to come from God the Father in the absence of God the Son, right? And Jesus had been very vague about this promise, especially in the recent days, in the Acts chapter 1 days. But he'd given them specific instructions. He said, I want you to wait here at Jerusalem until you receive this promise. Now, this is what would have typically happened. Okay, typically, uh, and we're going to discuss this in detail momentarily, but typically on a Jewish calendar, you have multiple feasts throughout the calendar year, right? And some of these feasts, just a select few, are what are considered pilgrimage feasts. In other words, it was customary that any Jew that lived nearby that could possibly travel to Jerusalem to celebrate that feast would do so. Passover over the time when Jesus was crucified was one of those pilgrimage feasts. Fifty days later was a second pilgrimage feast known as Pentecost that we're going to tackle and, and uh, uh, do our best to uh, examine what God was really doing on that first New Testament Pentecost momentarily. And so Jesus basically was saying to them, I don't want you to go home between Passover and Pentecost, but I want you to stay right here in Jerusalem because this is where you will receive the promise of the Father. And so they're waiting there, and they're like, you know what, guys, we can't just wait at the end of the first chapter. We've got to do something. We've got to somehow kind of get busy and prepare for this. So they looked around, and they saw the, the gap, the absence of Judas Iscariot, the one who had betrayed the Lord Jesus. And they saw his absence, and they saw that gap and that, that, that missing substance there. And so they began to scratch their heads, and they said, someone has to fill this role. And you know the story that they cast lots after they prayed, and between Versailles, Sabbath and Matthias, and Matthias was chosen. We never hear anything else about Matthias again, but about the 14th, 15th chapter of the book of Acts, I'm going to come back and we're going to look at Matthias. I'm going to present something powerful to you, but that'll be uh, many, many, many weeks down the road. But needless to say, winding down this road to Acts chapter 2, it has been, been a very rocky path, okay? They've thought that Jesus was going to take over and, and throw the Romans out. And then all of a sudden he was crucified instead. And they thought he was dead and he was gone and it was over with. And then all of a sudden he gets up out of the grave. And then they're walking along and they're thinking everything's going to go back to what it was and then all of a sudden he disappears and he disappears and they're like what are we going to do because Judas Iscariot is no longer here and we've got to feel this so this has been a difficult winding rocky path that has led us to Acts chapter 2 and let me say this before we move on looking in the lives of those disciples Arriving at Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, we could say the recent weeks, the recent months have been crazy, but something good is about to happen. And I cannot help but look at our lives and our situations in America, in Kentucky today. The last several months have been crazy, but I believe something good is about to happen. Are you with me this morning? Let's pick up at the end of that rocky path in Acts chapter 2, where we we will begin to see this incredible transformation take place. We'll begin to see this revolution birthed and come forth like a roaring lion that will turn the world upside down. Acts chapter 2, we arrive at it and we see this bold statement. When the day of Pentecost had come, 
All of the disciples were all together in one single place. I mentioned to you briefly earlier that Pentecost was, uh, was a pilgrimage feast, or so it was understood in the Jewish culture. This meant that any Jew who lived around nearby Jerusalem would take time off work, they would take vacation, they would go to Jerusalem, and they would find their families and their friends there, they would stay with them, and that's very important to note because it's going to be foundational to the next several chapters of the book of Acts and our understanding thereof, but they would stay with them for the Feast of Pentecost, and it was kind of like a three or four or five day event. You know, some may linger a few more days past that. And it was a little bit of a reunion. And they celebrated what God had done for Israel. Specifically, Pentecost was the celebration, that uh, was the feast that celebrated the giving of the law. So place this in your mind on the Jewish calendar, if you will. You have the feast of the Passover. And the Passover celebrated just exactly what its name was. The Passover, that first Passover when Israel were slaves in the land of Egypt and God said, hey, it's been enough. It's been 400 plus years. That's enough. I'm going to bring you out. And this is how all this is going to happen. And we saw all those details about the plagues. And there's so much depth there. I don't have time to uh, detail this morning. But God said, you're going to kill a lamb. And you're going to put the blood of the lamb on the door of the post of your house. And the death angel is going to pass over you. Hence the name Passover. This was the greatest event in Jewish history at the first century. Okay, This was the thing the Jews hung their hats on in that day and time. So Passover was this feast that celebrated the Passover. But 50 days after that first Passover, something else incredible had happened. God had led Israel out of Egypt, right? He had taken them out from under Pharaoh's hand, and they were wandering through the desert. They've experienced things like they've never, ever seen or heard of. Now keep in mind that those Israelites who had lived as slaves, they did not know the covenant with God that he had made with their forefathers. Abraham. They'd perhaps heard about it, but the only lifestyle they knew was a lifestyle of slavery and bondage in a pagan land known as Egypt. So they come out of Egypt and God is doing all this stuff and I just can't help but imagine that their minds are so saturated in the miraculous works of God that they just can't hardly uh, absorb them properly. They see a Red Sea parted. They see Pharaoh's army come after them. Then they see Pharaoh's army die in the same place that God gave them life, but yet they should have died. And all these incredible acts happen. They see when they get thirsty that Moses strikes a rock and water comes out of the rock. They would later see crazy, incredible things like manna fall down out of heaven when they were hungry every morning. And God provided their every single need throughout this desert experience. But God's desire was not merely to just bring them out of Egypt, let them wander around the desert like a bunch of, uh, like a bunch of toddlers, and then God just give them food and water when they're hungry and thirsty. But God said, my desire here is to reveal myself to you because you've been stuck in bondage in Egypt and you don't know who I am. And I believe this morning that God's desire for us, the church, for his people this morning is that we allow him to reveal himself to us because this world has clouded our minds. It's clouded our eyes. It's stopped up our ears and we have failed to absorb the incredible character of God. 
This celebration of Pentecost celebrated the beginning of God's firm revelation to Israel about His character. And that was specifically the giving of the law. Prior to this moment, there was no recorded word, no recorded verbiage from God to His people, such as the Scripture that we had today. The events, many of them had happened, but they weren't necessarily written down in an authoritative sense. And so God said to Moses, I must give clear instruction to my people. So Moses, 50 days after the Passover, God would call him up on top of a mountain called Mount Sinai. And for 40 days, Moses disappeared from the sights of the Israelite. Keep in mind that these disciples in Acts chapter 2 have just experienced some 40 days with Jesus. And then suddenly he has disappeared for 10 days and they're obeying. However, in Moses' absence and Moses' disappearance, the people of Israel, they begin to get antsy. And they begin to think, what has happened to Moses? Man, he tried to hike up the mountain and a wolf came and just tore him to pieces and ate him for lunch. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. We need a God. We need a leader. So keep in mind this, that Moses was the only one of these Israelites who had separated himself from Egyptian culture for 40 years prior to the Passover. Every single one of the rest of these millions plus people were still saturated in Egyptian culture, including Aaron, Moses' brother and right-hand man. So I'm going to play this story out for you this morning because this is what Pentecost celebrated. It celebrated the giving of the law. And as Moses was taken up on to Mount Sinai to receive that law from God, and he's out of the sight of the people of Israel, and they don't know where he's at. They don't know what's going on. They don't know God's given him the law. They just know their leader has disappeared, right? And they don't know where he's at or what's going to happen to him or what has become of him. So they begin to get antsy, and they begin to become impatient down at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And they say to Aaron, Moses' brother and right-hand man, they say, Aaron, we don't know what's become of Moses. Somebody has got to step in and give us leadership and give us a God. And so Aaron said, you know what, you're right. We need leadership. You know, this Moses guy, he talks about one God, and we all heard our great-great-great-great-grandparents talk about one God, and we've heard these stories, but in Egypt, you know, we had all these gods, so what's it going to hurt if we have another? So Aaron said, hey, guys and gals, i tell you what to do. Remember all the jewelry that you borrowed from the Egyptians prior to our exodus and prior to the night of the Passover. Take all the jewelry off. Take your earrings out. Take your watch bands off. Take all the gold and bring it up here and, 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 and throw it in the campfire and we'll see what can become of what God gave us from the Egyptians. And so the scripture actually accounts for us in Exodus chapter 38 that uh, all the gold was thrown into the fire and a golden calf just kind of popped out of the fire. We know that didn't happen, right? It was molded, it was shapen by the hands of these Israelite leaders. Now, this was very significant in the uh, list of gods that the Egyptians would have worshipped. And I don't have time to detail that for you this morning. But I will say this. That this was merely a misunderstanding of who God was based on their prior understandings of, of multiple deities in a, in a, in a polytheistic 
culture that they had been saturated in in Egypt. You say, Pastor, is it really important what I put in my mind? Is it really important as a believer what I listen to, what I watch, who I hang around, who I'm, who I'm friends with, all this stuff? Absolutely. I don't believe God calls us to become spiritual recluses, but this story in and of itself is proof that when we absorb things that don't necessarily instruct us properly about the character of God, that when we get to a point that we really need to know who he is, we will grossly misinterpret and miss the mark, as Paul would say, speaking of our carnal nature. So anyway, this golden calf pops out of the fire, and the people begin to worship this golden calf. And Moses all the while is up on Mount Sinai, and he's hearing from God. He's one-on-one with God, and he's just on an absolute literal and spiritual mountaintop. And then God says, okay, Moses, here are the two tables of stone of the law, and God's written them with his own hand and he says Moses take these and give them to my people and Moses is so proudly exiting the the, uh, mountain of Sinai and he's walking down the mountain he's got these two tables of stone with the very word of God pinned with the finger of God in his hands and he begins to hear a noise and the scripture says Moses said what is the sound I hear it's not a sound of war it's not that the people are being taken over by uh, by foreign enemies or something like that but it sounds like celebration I wonder what they're celebrating surely they didn't despise me that much that when I left they threw a 40-day party what are they celebrating and Moses gets closer to the camp and he spies out the golden calf and he sees the people dancing and celebrating and worshiping around that golden calf and he becomes very angry now before we get to the anger of Moses and what it brought about I think it is very noteworthy that back in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1 told us about the absence of Moses. Verse 4 told us about the the procurement or the production, the fabrication, that's the word I'm looking for, of the golden calf. But verse 5 is incredible because there Aaron sets the golden calf before the people of Israel. And for years and years and years, I missed this scripture reading this text, Moses sets that golden calf, that false idol before them. And he says in verse 4 and 5, he says, This is your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. What a, wait a minute. There was no golden calf that carried them out of the land of Egypt. And then Aaron goes on to say, Worship him today and tomorrow is going to be a feast to the Lord. But how often do we perceive this as just the Israelites had just said, well, we're done with Jehovah God. We're done with the Creator. We're done with Moses as God. Let's just go to worship a golden calf. That wasn't at all what had occurred. Rather, what had occurred is these Israelites were so saturated in pagan, polytheistic culture that they, that was their limited perception of God. And I know that today our minds are so saturated in carnality and worldliness because of the society that we live in, because of the brokenness of our human nature. But this morning, let me declare to you, God desires to reveal Himself to you and I in an incredible and pure manner. Moses looks at the worship of the golden calf. He becomes incredibly angry. I mean, here's this leader who has worked enslaved and worked enslaved. He's been up on a mountaintop for 40 days. He's done all this stuff that Moses has done. Left a perfectly good life at 80 years old to lead these people out of slavery. And he sees them worshiping around the golden calf. And he becomes uh, livid, man. He is so angry. He takes those two tables of stone. 
And he throws them on the ground and crushes them. And then, uh, I don't have time to detail all the events because I've taken far too much time already on this portion of the lesson. But, but the events conclude at Exodus chapter 32 and verse 28 when the scripture tells us because of the disobedience of the people of Israel, Moses deals with them and God's wrath comes. And all of a sudden, the, 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 the end of the story, I guess you would say, is the fact that 3,000 Israelites died that day as a result of their disobedience. The day the law was given, the day that God said, I want to clearly reveal myself to you. Rather, they chose to disobey. They chose to just cling to some type of a revelation of God that was tainted and marred by their own polytheistic culture that they were absorbed in. They, they chose that rather than to hear the perfect, pure revelation of who God was. The story of Pentecost is an incredible story because it is, it, is, it is detailing for us God's redemptive character and how God is, is, is desirous above all to redeem the brokenness of His prized possession of creation, humanity. The story of Pentecost is redemptive in multiple ways. But the first manner in which it is redemptive is it was redemptive to the broken nature of the people of Israel. This was not just a mysterious story where people begin to speak in tongues and crazy things happen and, 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 and the church is birthed and we just kind of read over it and think, man, I don't really understand that. And then we go on to chapter 2 and chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and everything just becomes somewhat normal. But there was something absolutely unprecedented that God was declaring in regards to His redemptive nature. Through the story of Pentecost, first, as I mentioned previously, it was redemptive to the nation of Israel. The story of Pentecost goes something like this, that the day of Pentecost had fully come and they were all in that upper room. They were there together, the same place, I believe, where they ate the Last Supper with Jesus, the same place where they prayed and chose Matthias to be the, the, the fill-in for Judas in his absence. And this is where they had stayed for some ten days after the ascension of Jesus. And something began to happen. All of a sudden, the scripture says in Acts chapter 2, verse 2, that there came a sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind. It sounded like a freight train that nobody had ever even heard before. And then something came not only through sound, but something came through vision. The scripture says the next detail of this occurrence was that cloven tongues, divided tongues as of fire, diverse tongues, if you will, set on fire, appeared before them. Literally, that was the vision that they saw. And they rested upon each of their heads upon each of their bodies and then all of a sudden they just begin to declare the works of God and everybody started to hear in his own language. Do you remember that this was a pilgrimage feast? There would have been people in Jerusalem from everywhere that spoke all different kinds of languages and it's actually accounted for later on in Acts chapter 2. But everybody began to hear in their own. We're going to detail that and it's... Uh, 
its dynamics momentarily. But as we go on, people begin to flock around that upper room. And I believe the disciples, they begin to walk outside of that upper room. They continued to declare the wonderful works of God, how He'd given His Son Jesus. But then shortly enough, people begin to come alongside and criticize them. And they said, these men must be drunk with sweet wine. It's 9 o'clock in the morning and they're so intoxicated, they're just babbling incessantly. And we don't know what they're saying. And then in that very moment of time, here's Simon Peter and he stands up he's the same man who had said Lord I'll never deny you but yet at the very moment that Jesus needed him the most I guess you would say the crucifixion Peter denies Jesus not once not twice but three times his life had been broken by his own sin but at that moment in time he had experienced something transforming a personal revolution if you will like we talked about three weeks ago and Simon Peter stood up and he began to declare the truth how that God had loved the world so much that he gave his only son and he deep details that and he details that and he details that and then all of a sudden the scripture de- uh, the scripture details for us that at the end of Peter's 10 minute sermon people begin to flock to him and they said men and brethren what must we do to be saved what do we have to do with this beautiful message that has been declared to us and this incredible experience that God has given us what must we do and Simon Peter said repent and be baptized for the Lord Jesus and for the remission of your sins and so they followed through and that day some 3,000 people were saved this would not have missed the mind of any Jewish person in the first century here they are celebrating a feast where the leader of Israel had disappeared And in his disappearance, Moses, the people of Israel became disobedient. And because of their disobedience, 3,000 people died. Here is another story in the New Covenant where the leader, Jesus, had disappeared. He descended into heaven. But all 11 of the disciples and everyone else around them said, Guys, we have got to cling to the word which he has given us. And we have got to wait here in Jerusalem. We've got to follow every jot and tittle, if you will. We've got to follow every detail of his instruction and so they did and he begins to bless them the same God that had no choice but to pour out his wrath upon the 3,000 for their disobedience begins to pour out his blessing for the obedience of these 12 actually these 120 if you will and 3,000 people come to know spiritual life in Jesus Pentecost was redemptive it was restorative of brokenness for Israel But it was not merely intended for Israel because if it were merely just intended for Israel, then what significance could it possibly have for you and I today? It was also redemptive. It was also of a restorative nature for the entire world, both Jew and Gentile alike. Predating the the, the foundational covenant to the nation of Israel, the Abrahamic covenant. Predating the Abrahamic covenant, the story of Abraham following God. And God saying, hey, I'm going to make a great nation out of your uh, descendants. And all nations of the earth are going to be blessed. A prophecy about the Messiah. Before all that happened, there's an incredible story in Scripture that happens on the heels of Noah and his family being rescued from the flood. It's found in Genesis chapter 11. And it accounts for us that several generations after the destructive flood of Noah's day, Noah and his, uh, you know, those eight people, they're saved by that boat that God had instructed Noah to build. 
And they go back into the earth and they begin to repopulate the earth and replenish the earth. So the earth under them had kind of began to uh, adapt to this, this, this fresh new sense, if you will. And so uh, several generations later, the people are still so tightly bound and tightly wound together. They, they were all from the same lineage, like many people here in Lincoln County. Uh, they're, you, they're all from the same lineage. Their family tree's kind of straight, you know, and they're all speaking the same language and the same words. And they said, hey, our unity is so powerful that we could actually take over God. We could reach heaven on our own. Genesis 11 accounts that story, how that those men and women said, we're going to use our togetherness, our unity to reach all the way up to heaven. And they begin to build a tower. And God himself recognizes the power of human unity. But because of their own attempted self-righteousness, because of their own works and effort to reach heaven themselves, God had no choice but to strike them down. And at that moment when He struck them down, they all began to speak in diverse different languages, but they couldn't understand one another. And now their unity of self-righteousness, that they attempted to exalt above the righteousness of God, now that unity had been torn asunder. It had been divided into a million different pieces through the power of diverse language. And all of a sudden, no one there who was building that tower could even understand what each other was saying. And so they named that place Babel in the Hebrew Babel, which means to be confused. They named it Babel. They went out from that destructed tower and they went on about their way and the story of creation just continued with nothing incredible coming from that day and time. The human race was divided here. But at the day of Pentecost, God said, I'm going to restore the brokenness that was brought about by man's own self-righteousness and his desire to exalt his own self-righteousness above my righteousness. Because it was at the day of Pentecost that God said, I'm going to allow everyone to hear the gospel declared from someone who does not know their language in the ears of their own native language. Now, I'm not going to get doctrinal here this morning, maybe later on in this study, but not today. But regardless of whether you believe or don't believe in the gift of the unknown tongue... Acts chapter 2 was probably not the experience of the, quote, unknown tongue. Because this was a supernatural ability to speak in other known tongues, but they were unknown to the person who was speaking to them. But can you imagine the division that had, been occur that had occurred based on the self-righteousness of humanity that had cost them so much because of their rebellion? Now Pentecost is the, the uh, revelation of God's desire, His redemptive character, to say the gospel is not just for one group. It is not just for one religion. It is not just for one race. It is not just for one lineage. But whosoever will. Let him come. It was this very premise that was foundational and that would later lead to that great divorcement of God saying that his covenant was only with Israel and that great expansion 
to the entire world when in the book of Acts God would say to Simon Peter, Arise, kill and eat, looking at the four-footed beast of the field. And Peter would say, Nothing common or unclean has ever touched my mouth. And God said, If I created it, it's not unclean. And the church was, it was revealed to them that the gospel was good for both Jew and Gentile alike. This was the foundational stone that built us to that point. Pentecost was, was a revelation of God's redemptive desire, not only for Israel, but for the entire world. And finally, if I may this morning, I want to declare the last thing that God said, I want to redeem through the story of Pentecost. And that thing was you and me. These incredible details lead us up to Simon Peter's sermon. He stands up on the day of Pentecost and he begins to declare some type of an answer to these otherwise confused men and women. These guys aren't drunk with wine, he says, as you suppose. But this, rather, is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. And upon my servants and my handmaids, I'll pour out my Spirit in those days, says the Lord. And Simon Peter goes on and on and on and on. And he begins to declare that God is doing something, if I may summarize his lesson. That God is doing something far greater on a grander scale than they could fathom in their minds. And it was all about the individual. In Acts chapter 2 at verse 1, they were gathered together in one room. In chapter 2 at verse 3, it says that it appears to them they heard the noise, and it appears to them the gift of divided tongues. In verse 8, all the people begin to come from miles around, and they begin to say, we hear in our own language. And then Simon Peter stands up, and he doesn't change the subject. But in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, God wants you. To know, be it known to you. In verse 17, he says this is for all of mankind. In verse 22, he makes a declaration. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by death's power. And he wraps it up in a summary in verse 37. 38 and 39 and he says when they heard this they were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and the apostles what must we do and Simon Peter says repent each of you and be baptized for the in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin this was not merely a, an event significant to Israel in its overall redemption and restoration, it was not merely an event significant for the overall restoration of the broken world in which we live. But it declared restoration to you and to me. 
and of all the incredible things we're going to read and study in the book of Acts, this is what set the church ablaze. That God wants me. That God wants you. That all of this wasn't about Him. And here we are just trying to understand Him in our, in our tiny, carnal, finite minds. But rather that God said, no, come here. I want to reveal myself to you. I want to reveal myself to you because the revelation of who I am cannot be contained in the form of a golden calf. It cannot be contained in the form of your own self-righteousness. But my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts. But come to me, I want you to see who I am in this began the revolution known as Christianity. Our hats as believers hang upon the fact, the door of faith hinges upon the fact that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, but He loves individuals so much that He would have given His Son likewise just for one. If you're here this morning, you don't know the Lord Jesus. I want to say to you this morning, His Word declares, Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you stand as we pray together? Father, we're so thankful for Your Word.